This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. It is a great honor to welcome Professor Graham Harmon back to the program today to discuss Architecture and Objects, published in 2022 with the University of Minnesota Press. Professor Harmon is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the Southern California Institute of Architecture, also known as SciArc, and he is the author of Object-Oriented Ontology, A New Theory of Everything, Immaterialism, Objects and Social Theory, and Art and Objects. Professor Harmon, welcome to the show. Thanks, and it's nice to be back in contact with someone in Leipzig, a place that's dear to my heart as well. So the book begins with a good question. Why a book on architecture and objects? Several factors fed into this. The first is that I've been closely involved with the architectural world for about 10 years, but especially for the past six and a half years, during which I've been teaching at the Southern California Institute of Architecture. And the story behind that is simply that um, I was giving a series of lectures in New York back in 2011, and my old undergraduate classmate, David Rue, showed up for those lectures. He, he's an architect. And he told me that your philosophy is going to be very important for architects. And I was surprised by this. And uh, so I asked him to give me a reading list just so that I could start understanding conversations a little bit. And I went through that reading list and I became interested and read more and more and more and finally was hired in an architecture school. And from working at SciArc and having access to their library and colleagues and listening to all the lecturers they bring in who are so wonderful, I became uh, somewhat conversant with architecture and to the point where I was finally able to write a book about it. Yeah, you, uh, you played a little saxophone with David Ruback in undergraduate days, right? We did. That was our main connection. We weren't close friends, but we did both play saxophone and we, we had a famous jam session on campus, or famous when we were there at least. And it's like any fields. Um, going from no knowledge to some knowledge is the hardest. And, you know, there's that old saying that nothing's more dangerous than a little knowledge. I actually don't believe that anymore. I, I believe nothing's more dangerous than no knowledge. Because once you have a little knowledge in a field, you have enough that you can learn from listening to people. You can have some idea of, of where the different camps are situated. And then you have a lot of different leads you can chase down. 
Uh, whereas if you have no knowledge at all of a field, everything is just like white noise when you hear it. You have no idea what they're talking about or what the significance of anything is. But a little bit of knowledge more quickly leads to a lot of knowledge. And so, yeah, I read I read the 10 classics and the 10 contemporaries, and this is only a little over a decade ago. And that led to where I am today, which is certainly not an expert, but a, a pretty well-versed amateur who was able to write about architecture in, in not completely nonsensical ways, I hope. So could you talk about formalism to get us started with? Sure. Formalism has a lot of different meanings, kind of like realism. But I would say that there are two basic meanings of formalism. And the one that I am not using is the one that refers to mathematical formalization, where you're creating models or you're often people who talk about formalism are talking about self-reflexivity when they come from that camp. So we've got, for example, Paul Livingston's work on Derrida and Gödel. Uh, that's an example of that usage of the term. Or uh, Tom Ayers at Duquesne University, who wrote a book called Speculative Formalism. He's talking about self-reflexive paradoxes in literary criticism. And that's not the sense in which I'm using it. I'm using it in the other main sense, which is the Kantian sense. Uh, Kant, as far as I can recall, only uses the term formalism with respect to his ethics, where he explicitly calls himself an ethical formalist. It's implicitly there in his art theory and the critique of judgment. And the way I would define the Kantian sense of formalism is that a thing is autonomous from its surroundings. It's cut off from other things to some extent. So, for example, famously in his ethical theory, um, ethics are not to be judged by their consequences. Uh, so they're, they're cut off as acts that are ends in themselves. Uh, that's the sense in which he's an ethical formalist. The sense in which he's an aesthetic formalist is that he uh, doesn't want an artwork to be reduced to its conceptual meaning, to any paraphrase that can be made of it, doesn't want it reduced to its effect on me personally, the way it makes me feel, and things of that nature. The artwork is somehow self-contained. Now, I am, I'm generally in favor of that, but f for reasons that are different from the usual ones. I, I don't think an artwork can or needs to be cut off from its social and political surroundings the way most hardcore formalists do, like such as Clement Greenberg and Michael Fried, who don't like the term formalism, but they're basically formalists in that sense. Um, they don't want to look at the biography of the artist too much. Um, but the problem with Kantian formalism, and I think also with Friedian formalism, and I have a lot of time for Michael Fried. I wrote a lot of, about him a lot in my book, Art and Objects. I think the problem with it is, is those kinds of formalists specifically want to cut off the work and the beholder from each other as if the beholder somehow automatically contaminates the artwork. Whereas my sense of formalism is a rather different one in which it's the, the relation of the beholder and the, and the work that are themselves, that is itself cut off from all other relations. So in other words, I don't exclude relations either in art, art or architecture. I simply want to draw our attention to the fact that there are always a limited number of relations. There's not this wild, holistic fiesta of intercontextual relations with every art or architectural work. There's probably a half dozen or so in most cases, whereas other, other relations are deliberately excluded. And uh, what you're trying to focus on is which relations are the rare ones allowed to participate in the artwork, which ones are not. So for me, art is all about the relation between uh, the work and the beholder. And uh, in a way, ironically, it's Fried who showed that to us. Um, Freed goes through this process in his career where he ends up finding out that the old kind of formalism is impossible 
and that the relation between the the work and the beholder is is an inherent part of the art experience. And so in a sense, against what he really wants to say, art is inherently theatrical, meaning that art is inherently related to the beholder. If you, if you remove all humans from the art world, you don't really have arts. You have works that can become arts if a human comes along and activates them. Now, I am aware that an, plenty of animals have aesthetic experience, but not not in the way that we usually talk about artworks. So if I can just say one more thing, it's that um, the point of my project about architecture and objects is that Kant uh, has a very low opinion of architecture because architecture is contaminated by its usefulness, which means that it can't be cut off from its environment the way Kant wants artworks to be. Whereas my reading in Art and Objects, I said that Kant can't consistently maintain that about artworks, right? That artworks are always entangled with the beholder and therefore architecture isn't any more contaminated than art automatically is from the start. So uh, in fact, architecture allows us to confront the limitations of Kantian aesthetics more than the artwork does because art has to own its relation with context, with purpose. Um, So in a way, architecture becomes a kind of privileged genre for our philosophy of art in this time in the way that literature has been for others, film has been for others. Uh, Each philosopher of art has their favorite genre of art usually. For me, it's become architecture, partly through the accident of teaching in an architecture school and partly because architecture forces art theorists to face head on that there's no escaping from entanglement. But you can still have formalism because that entanglement itself is cut off from other entanglements. It becomes, and later I think you're going to ask me about the term cell, aesthetic cell. That's what that's going to be about, but we can leave that for later. And this leads beautifully into the next question, which is kind of a reference, I guess, to Patrick Schumacher's The Autopoiesis of Architecture, in which he argues that the lead distinction in architecture is between form and function. In the book, you come up with this idea of zero form and zero function. So could you maybe explain this for listeners? Sure. Maybe I'll give a quick background on the the form-function distinction in architecture. In some ways, it goes all the way back to the beginning. And the beginning for architecture is is Vitruvius during the time of Julius and Augustus Caesar, simply because that's the oldest work of architecture we uh, architectural theory we have. And so that became the the go to source when it was rediscovered in the Renaissance. It actually wasn't totally rediscovered. It was around during medieval during the medieval period. Um, but it wasn't really used by the Gothic and Romanesque architects. Um, so it was really in the Renaissance when it was, maybe it was discovered in the 14th century. And then in the Renaissance, it became a classic. And uh, in the classic English translation by Sir Henry Wooten, Vitruvius says architecture is concerned with commodity, firmness, and delight. And if you consider the fact that firmness is now the province of engineering, It's the structural engineers who worry about the building not falling down. Architects need to contribute a bit to that, but it's the engineer's job usually to to make sure it's it's firm enough to stand up. Um, uh, Commodity and delight, there we have uh, function and form. Um, That's what the terms became. And ironically, the second great architectural theorist we have, unless you count the scraps on Gothic style by um, um, Abbot Suger uh, during the medieval period in Paris, it's really Alberti who is uh, 1,400 years after Vitruvius. That's the second great treatise we have. And so it would be like if the first two philosophers we had were Plotinus and Descartes. There's a similar 1,400-year gap between those two. That would be strange. Uh, But that's really the situation in architecture. But from the Renaissance forward, the architectural corpus grew immensely, and it's just as big and as complicated as the one in, 
in philosophy. It's a, that's why one of the reasons it's such a, a steep learning curve in architecture for people like me to, to read all that stuff. But um, form and function, uh, there's a guy named Carlo Lodoli in Venice who was a, a monk in the 18th century. And he was the first one to suggest that form and function are really the central two terms of architecture. But his work wasn't published for around 100 years. His, his students wrote down his teachings and it, they were published about 100 years later. So it's really in the 19th century that people start talking about form and function as the two opposed principles of architecture. And then you get these camps where some emphasize form, some emphasize function. Some claim it's a superficial distinction, but they usually end up aligning with one or the other. And the functionalists tend to dominate modernism, of course. The, this kind of spare, austere aesthetic where you're not supposed to have historical decorations. A lot of people get their introduction to architecture from Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, which you know Howard Rourke is the hero. And it, it's he's kind of an exemplar of the international style, which it isn't called in the novel. But the idea that the form of a building must grow naturally out of its function um, which leading eventually to a kind of um, a streamlined modern aesthetic of glass and concrete, which is what the postmodernists started reacting, even before the postmodernists, before the postmodern uh, camp emerging explicitly, you had this general reaction against ahistorical architecture in the 1960s with three authors, in particular, Robert Venturi in America, and then two Italian authors, Aldo Rossi and Manfredo Tafuri who in their different ways wanted to bring history back into architecture somehow, which is something the modernists weren't that interested in, right? They were, they were rationalists. They wanted to, to build architecture again from the ground up. And then there was this historical backlash in the sixties. And one of the camps that emerged out of that was historical postmodernism, which began to dominate in the seventies. This idea that, Urban continuity is important, and so you should include all these historical references in your architecture. And then the other uh, movement that arose out of that that had a little more in common with modernism, I would say, are the deconstructivists who are famous among philosophers because of their relation to Jacques Derrida. They were trying to create a sense of disruption, a sense of strangeness, in a sense. Um, and one of the most famous of those, of course, was Peter Eisenman. And Peter Eisenman considers himself a formalist. But he has a very specific sense of formalism. And it, it again, is more that sense of self-reflexivity. For him, a building should be self-contained and it should contain clues to how it should be read. And so it's architecture about architecture in a sense, right? The clues are contained showing you that, for instance, there's a book, a, a building where, um, uh, Le Corbusier, where the, the back, it's got columns going down the middle, but the columns are closer to the back wall than they are to the sides, side walls. And so uh, Eisenman reads this plausibly as meaning that this is supposed to send the message that the building could have been continued in depth further uh, because they're almost, the back columns are almost pushing up against the limits of the back wall. And uh, he does this when reading many different architects from the recent past. And he says, if you don't do that, then you're a humanist. And uh, humanism is a bad thing to be avoided. A building must be contained in itself. And so Eisenman would consider himself, he doesn't use the term, but he might consider himself an object-oriented architect in the sense that he's focused on objects, not on the human use or the human relation to the building. Now, unfortunately, I think he, he goes to an extreme in this. One of the ways he makes this point is by actively subverting function. 
And there's been a lot of criticism of him for this. Uh, for instance, in his Wexner Center on the Ohio State University campus, which is an art gallery, among other things, uh, there are complaints that many of the paintings are left in direct sunlight, or at least were when it was first completed. Um, and in other, other cases, he has designed some houses that are numbered. And in some of these houses, there are columns going down a bed or down the middle of the dining space. And he seems a bit too proud of this, right? Saying that it at least provokes new conversations. And it's almost like Heidegger in the sense that in Heidegger, you want to have broken equipment so that it draws your attention to it. But I don't think that active subversion of function is the route to go because I don't think you need to get rid of humans to not have a humanist architecture. Just as with artwork, I think you need architecture that serves human purposes. And that is why um, why I think some degree of functionalism is, or at least a nod to functionalism is necessary. And here I agree with Patrick Schumacher, who has criticized Eisenman for precisely this reason. Anyway, I've been going on along here. Maybe you want to ask a follow-up. Well, I was wondering if you, you've done a wonderful job of introducing formalism and functionalism in architecture. Maybe now we can transition to zero form and zero function specifically. Exactly. Uh, it's my claim that both form and function in the history of architecture have had two relational ascents. So this is obvious in the case of function because a function involves a relation. So the function of the building should be the purpose that it serves, right? That the the purpose should be it's going to be a hospital or it's going to be a monastery or a stadium, whatever you might have in mind. So that's the obvious relational sense of function. Now, the obvious relational sense of form is that when you ask most, most architects what they mean by form, they're going to say the visual look of the building. But a visual look obviously is a look for someone. It's a look from a specific standpoint, specific distance from the building. And so I call that too relational. I think you need a non-relational sense of form for sure, if you want to have a real form, a deep form, as it were. But you also need a non-relational sense of function. And that sounds like the paradox, because a function is inherently a relation. So how can you have a relation that's not a relation? And so my idea here is zero form and zero function. And like most of the ideas I come up with when I'm talking about other fields, you don't have to do everything differently from scratch. That would be a modernist approach, right? That I, philosopher... I'm here to tell this field how it should conduct itself in a new way. Whereas usually practitioners find their way to proper solutions without my help. We almost come after the fact as theorists. And the idea of how to get a non-relational function, there are a couple, at least two forerunners for this. One of them is Aldo Rossi's book, Architecture of the City. That was one of those 1960s historical works I talked about. And of course, Rossi was also an important architect himself. He won the Pritzker Prize, which is the Nobel Prize for Architects, basically. Died tragically in a car accident, too young. But um, uh, Rossi talks, he has a critique of in his book of what he calls naive functionalism. This idea that a building needs to serve a purpose. Well, he's Italian. And of course, in Italy, there are all these buildings, historical buildings in particular, that either are still being used for a completely different function from what they originally had. So in Italy, you find things that were whatever, horse stables that are now something totally different today. You also have a lot of monuments that never really had a specific function to begin with. And so in both of those cases, you have something, uh, a construction that is somehow subtracted or withdrawn from the original purpose that it had. And of course, many buildings, including Syarch, where I work, are used for a completely different function from what they once had. In the case of Syarch, it used to be a train station the beginning of its existence, a freight rail station. 
And then it became a kind of bombed out homeless shelter. And I met an Uber driver once who told me he used to bribe the homeless to leave for a night so he could organize raves in there. And now it's an architecture school since around 2000. And that's just one example of many. Um, many buildings take on different forms. And so you have to talk about a deeper function than the one it currently serves in its current use. And so you find, for example, in the case of SciArc, where I work, the deep function is something like a lengthy movement along a horizontal axis. Because since it was a it was a freight rail station originally, you don't need a lot of space for people. So it's just very long with lots of openings for freight cars to back up into to be loaded. And uh, what that means now is that it's still a very long and skinny building, which means uh, the two ends of the building are very par- far apart from each other. So you have to leave plenty of time to go from the library to the laser lab, which are the two extreme points. And then also our director, uh, Hernan Diaz Alonso often jokes that he doesn't need to schedule meetings because if you just walk down the one hallway, you're going to meet everybody at some point who's there. At one point, it branches into two at the very end, but for the most part, there's just one hallway. And so if you're trying to avoid people, you have to go outside and, and move that way because you're going to run into everybody otherwise. So that's that's a hint of what the deeper function is. And that's one example. Another example of zero function, though, this comes from Rem Kohlhaus, who... Um, possibly the most successful architect today. The, the, he's certainly one of them. A uh, famous Dutch architect who began his career as a journalist, went back and became an architect. And um, the way he often presents his work is that it's simply, he designs things in the most programmatically successful way. And you get kind of a mixed uh, response to that uh, claim on his part, that manifesto on his part. One of them is, is you get architects saying, what a bunch of nonsense. He just likes making cool shapes and he uses these supposed programmatic things as an excuse to make his cool shapes. So, for instance, the building in Beijing, the, the TV tower that you've seen it probably. People people jokingly compare it to trousers. You have a picture uh, of it in the book, I think. I do, actually. Yes, I do. To help me make the points. And his justification for that form is that it's all of the steps of the TV process, TV making process. So you can send the film through stage one and then stage two and stage three. And all the time you're going up one floor at a time. And then we get to the top, you're going across and then coming down. But then of course, others have rightly made the point that you could just put that in a line, right? You don't, you don't need that to be a, a vertical tower with a horizontal, two horizontal spans and then another vertical descending tower. That's one reaction, is that he's just a formalist in disguise. But then the other reaction you get is that he is simply cynically trying to create maximal infrastructure performance, and that it's it's the destruction of architecture as we know it for that reason. And you find that especially along more, more older older architects who are more sympathetic to phenomenology. Um, Jeffrey Kibnis, who's a close associate of Peter Eisenman, uh, made a similar critique in a, in a brilliant article that I ended up disagreeing with, but it's a brilliant article called Recent Call House. And recent, it was written in the 1990s, so it's not recent anymore. And there he's talking about Call House's failed entry in the competition to design the Tate Modern in London, uh, which a building many people know. And of course, one of the rules, it, it's an old electrical power generating station, and it still looks like that. And it still has the smokestack. That was one of the rules of the competition. You got to keep the brick smokestack. And Kipnis's critique of the design is it would have been an amazing 
place to see art, but it would have meant the death of architecture as we know it if it had won the, the competition. The reason being that there's nothing really in it that says art gallery, that it's simply a maximum performance of people moving, the, moving the most people through the space in the shortest amount of time. It's an infrastructural project, according to Kipnis. And so, you know, Kipnis is technically a formalist, and so he thinks the form part is missing, to boil it down to that. And if you start, as if to emphasize this, Kohlhaas makes the very provocative gesture of even stripping the uh, smokestack down to the skeleton underneath it. He was deliberately violating one of the rules of the competition, uh, reducing the, the, the brick smokestack to a, a framework. And uh, um, Kibnis has this wonderful set of phrases where he says that, that Kohlhaas hacks away at the competition brief till it's down to its muscles and finally down to its nervous system. What was originally there of the building and of the competition brief are no longer there. Just this bare outline or there, this abstraction is there. But in a way, that's very close to the zero function that I recommend. Um, you are leaving the functional aspect there, but you are stripping it from its reference to any particular function for the reasons that Aldo Rossi uh, pointed out, that buildings are destined in many cases to outlast their function. And so uh, there's got to be something more to it than the fact that it's useful for serving a particular thing. So th that's what I mean by zero function. Now, shall I go on and talk about zero form? Yeah, yeah, please. All right. But why can't the form of a building be its visual look? Well, there are a couple of reasons. I've already mentioned one, which is that a building can be seen from many different possible angles, many different possible lighting conditions. And each of those is going to teach us something slightly different about the form. I mean, obviously, there's a certain uh, enduring structural form that's going to be there despite any of our views of it. But nonetheless, uh, no particular view of a building is going to give us the building, its form. So that's one thing. The fact that um, um, it can be seen from all different vantage points. And it's funny, Maurice Merleau-Ponty says somewhere that the, in phenomenology perception, that the house is not the house viewed from nowhere, but the house viewed from everywhere. And I criticize this from my second book, Guerrilla Metaphysics Onward. A house is not a set of views. It's because the house exists that we can have many views of it, not because we have many views of it that it exists. Yeah, well, why isn't it the house is not the house smelled from nowhere, but the house smelled from everywhere, or tasted it's from very, nowhere, or tasted from everywhere? Very good point. You had another good point, which is that visuality should not be privileged, right? There are other senses. There are other ways to experience a building, and they involve the smell, the light, and perhaps biggest of all, what I'm going to get to next, the interior. Now, it was the young Peter Eisenman, of all people, who had this insight. Uh, he, he wrote a series of, of uh, articles on formalism that were taken from his dissertation at Cambridge under Colin Rowe. And um, one of the things that uh, he says two things in that early work that I really appreciate and that he, he didn't really dwell on in his later career. One of them is that architecture is an essentially kinetic experience held together by memory. It's not an essentially uh, visual experience because... You need to go through the building. Um, unlike novels and films, in principle, you can go through the building in any order you want. I mean, the architect wants to guide us in many ways, but at certain points, you have choices about which way you want to go through. You can also backtrack. So it's more like a video game in that sense. And I take video games seriously as at least potential artworks, if not yet. So that's one way in which the form can't just be the visual look. It, it, it's actually a kinetic experience, and it's held together in memory. 
Uh, and so our form, the form of a building is stretched out in time. It's not an instantaneous form. So that's one thing. Another thing is that um, the point about memory, Eisenman makes what I think is a brilliant point, which is that uh, because our memories are fairly feeble, the form needs to be memorable. And one of the problems with computer-generated design, which infatuated the... It's, it's my, my peers in architecture, people my same age, who were the first to have the paperless studio at Columbia University. A number of my colleagues, at, uh, at least three of my colleagues, if not four at SciArc, were graduate students in Columbia in the early 90s when Bernard Chimney was dean, and he was the first to remove paper from the studio. And at first, they were all infatuated with this, they tell me, and they're just generating all these wonderful, crazy forms on the computer. The problem is, once you generate a bunch of complicated forms, they all start to look the same. As Descartes noticed, you can't really tell the difference between a 100,000 and a 1,000-sided figure in your minds, right? Uh, you can tell the difference between a four-sided and a six-sided figure. So there's a limit to what humans can remember. And so Eisenman, the early Eisenman made that fascinating point that architecture's basic repertoire should be simple geometric shapes. And he said there's really only two kinds. They're the linear and the centroidal. So the linear are things like oblongs. The centroidal are things like squares and spheres. And uh, he says there's also hybrid shapes, such as the corkscrew shape of a staircase, which is both linear and centroidal. And he doesn't really talk about that much in his later career, but I think that's true. And that's why I favor a popular favorite that may not be architects' favorite, they don't despise it, most of them, is the Sydney Opera House. Now, what do I like about the Sydney Opera House? Is What I like is that you can sketch it from memory more or less. You might not get the exact positioning right, but once you've seen it, you remember the basic idea that it's a simple but asymmetrical arrangement of, of shell-like shapes. It turns out they're the surface of spheres, but they look like hemispheres or shells. And uh, that's what makes it so wonderful. It's simple, but memorable. And this is what I've taken to telling my students when I sit on architectural reviews. I like your design because I'll be able to remember it tomorrow. Whereas sometimes people go too crazy with the software. They invent a 27-sided thing with all these pieces sticking, sticking out, and it's no different from a 29-sided thing, uh, if such a thing were to exist. So the, that, those are the clues for how you would get it a zero form. It has to be temporal, and it ought to be something memory-enhancing, because you're not going to be standing in front of the building forever. You're only going to be there for a little while, a couple hours at most, and then you're going to be retaining it in your memory for a while. And then I just want to give the one example that I made of buildings that are um, uh, too relational in terms of the form. And my example is what's considered a masterpiece of the 20th century, which is Frank Gehry's Guggenheim in Bilbao, Spain. And uh, I consider that building to be something closer to a sculpture than a building. And I've, I've been there in person, so I say this from experience. I mean, it's a nice building. I don't like it as well as Gehry's... Um, um, what's what's the thing in Paris? The uh, Louis Vuitton, Fondation Louis Vuitton, which I've also been to. And I'll explain what I, what I find wrong with the, the Guggenheim and Bilbao. Um, for one thing, it's surrounded with famous artworks as if to emphasize that it's a sculpture and part of a sculpture garden. So you've got the Louis Bourgeois giant spider and you've got a Jeff Koons flower puppy. And I guess the badminton shuttlecocks are out there. And the building ends up seeming like just another sculpture because when you go inside, it's it's surprisingly boring, I find. It's not really Frank Gehry to me when I go inside that building. It's a pretty boring floor plan and you end up staying inside not very long. I suppose if there's a show in there, when I went there, there wasn't much of a show up. 
I just found myself wanting to go back outside. Now, architects will try to justify that by saying, oh, it really interacts well with the environments. You know, it, it, it's a contextual work. All right, fine. But I think that's not entirely true because as I've mentioned, it might interact with the bridge and it might interact with a couple of the other buildings in that area. But there's a limit to how many things it can interact with. Bilbao as a context is infinitely diverse. Nothing can interact with that entire context. It's choosing to resonate with a couple of those things, which means, all right, if you want to extend it beyond the, the limited building to a couple of things in the environment, fine. But still, that's not zeroing it enough unless you focus on that limitation, unless you focus on the fact that the cell of the building, as I would call it, the interaction with the building with a very small number of other objects forms a self-contained system. And also, you're losing the form when you do that. You're losing the autonomous form of the building, which requires that you be inside. And when you're inside, you're not interacting with the context at all. Now, of course, the inside, as I said, is, is boring. Whereas at the Fondation Louis Vuitton building in Paris, also by Frank Gehry, uh, there are some really interesting quirks on the interior. I especially like this unexpected staircase through a door that takes you up to this strange sort of patio. It's not quite at rooftop level, but it has an interesting view. I think I saw the Eiffel Tower from up there. I'm pretty sure I saw La Défense from up there. And I just found that a much more satisfying experience. Um, the only problem really is that it's isolated. It's, it's not an easy part of Paris to get to. So anyway, that was, that's just, those are some of the examples of what I mean by zero form and zero function. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, so you mentioned, maybe we can return to the Cyark building really quick, because you mentioned that the zero function of the Cyark building would then be this uh, sort of elongated shape. What would be the zero form of the Cyark building? Interesting. Um, something relatively related to that. Um, the, the zero function would be enforced chance meetings with colleagues because simply that's the way the corridor works. You're going to meet everybody, students and colleagues, whether you want to or not. Zero form of the Cyark building would be something like... Um, elongated motion or, or delayed motion. Mm -hmm. um, and then there a series, a series of different basic visual experiences, a cramped hallway at one end, um, opening onto studio space as you pass a little further down, opening up onto a larger area where lectures are held, opening onto uh, entryway plus something we call the Spanish steps. There are these very steep steps right inside our front door. We jokingly call them the Spanish steps. And then uh, moving past what used to be a cafe that went out of business during COVID and is now used for storage, various things, 
on on the more studio space, and then at the far end, administration, and then the the library upstairs. Uh, so it, it would be a a sequence of punctuated uh, environments, varying according to a certain rhythm. That would be the zero form, and I'd I'd have to use my prose skills to make that more vivid. If we were doing this in writing, it's hard to do on the fly in speech. Yeah, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, of course. I'm just curious because the zero form and the zero function are are clearly distinct in some way. Yes, but but also they get they sometimes get so close for me in my head that I'm always trying to figure out, okay, what's the zero form here? What's the zero function here? Well, they are pretty close, and there's enough of a distinction that I don't want to join the camp of saying there is no distinction between form and function. Because there is. One is inherently relational and one is inherently non-relational. And so um, uh, it's more a question of the zero form being what are the self-contained aspects of the building itself and the function being more about what do other entities do with the building or how do they encounter the building. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another creepy fact about the Syrac building, by the way, is the Los Angeles police pulled something like 45 dead bodies out of there over the years because it was a as I mentioned, a, a place where homeless took shelter from the rain. We don't have much rain, but also a place where drug overdoses occurred. Uh, so it's kind of eerie to be in a building like that, but it's, it's a comfortable environment to work in otherwise. But then the, you mentioned that the zero function might be meeting your colleagues uh, on the way to different uh, classes or different places. Mm -hmm. uh, but then that would not have been the zero function 30 years ago. Right. And so that suggests that the zero, the zero form changes less than the zero function does with function, which isn't surprising, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it changes to an architecture school, then the, the function is going to change. Right. Um, I, and I don't know how the workers were arranged in the days of the rail station. Right. When the homeless were there, there wasn't really a corridor. There was a dirt floor. So you're right. Um, mm -hmm. That corridor required the explicit functionality of an architecture school or at least of a usable building. Uh, for that zero function to emerge, whereas the zero form should be something more constant over the centuries. And we're now entering our second century with that building in existence. Uh, actually, it's, it's been like 115 years now. So um, there's, that's actually, actually, you've come up with a good rule of thumb. Things that have stayed constant since the original use are more likely to be zero form than zero function. I hadn't thought of it that way before. And maybe this is also a nice transition into our, the next distinction from form, which is form and content. Maybe, maybe you could explain the difference between form and content and then bring it specifically into the book. Sure. Form and content, the first thing to think of when you hear that phrase is media theory, uh, at least as elucidated by Marshall McLuhan, who I think is about, still a vastly underrated writer because he was so popular. Because he was so popular, people think of him as a TV pundit and don't take his theories as seriously as they should, even at the University of Toronto, where they've kind of taken the McLuhan program away from McLuhan, to my chagrin, uh, in recent years. But um, McLuhan, of course, is most famous for his idea that the medium is the message, which essentially means that the background medium is more important than any content contained inside of it. So famously, one of his examples, um, if there is a television show, it doesn't really matter whether it's a good or a bad television show. Right, the, the it's the background medium of television that matters most. McLuhan will say that um, 
the content of any medium is no more important than the graffiti on the atomic bomb, which is a very provocative way of making the point, right? That, yeah, this, the, the pilots of the Enola Gay scrawled some graffiti against the Japanese army on the atomic bomb, but it doesn't really matter. No one ever read it except for them. Atomic bomb exploded. The graffiti is, is incinerated along with everything else in Hiroshima. Um, that goes a little too far. Uh, I've written some pieces on what I call the revenge of the surface, where precisely in a thinker like McLuhan, for whom the deep medium is so deep, it can't make contact with anything else. And so you need the surface to make things happen. And I think the same thing happens in Heidegger, right? That for Heidegger, being is so deep, it needs beings to make anything happen. So it, the depth requires the most superficial surface for anything to happen. But uh, to get back to the question of, of uh, media theory, this question also arises in architecture, of course, because in architecture, in one sense, architecture is like a, a legible text the way Peter Eisenman wants it to be. You're presented with a certain spectacle and the architecture is providing you with clues as to how to interpret it. Eisenman's very good at explaining this in particular cases. He's got a book called Ten Canonical Buildings that does just this for anyone who wants to learn. I've learned a lot from it. But then you also have the background atmosphere in which you are uh, operating, in which any of these particular uh, visual spectacles are presented. And so architecture has that same duality. Really, Just about anything has that same duality, right? There's the medium and then there's the content you're focused on uh, within the medium. So uh, that's an important factor in, in architecture as well. Uh, this idea that not all architecture is going to be something that you're consciously aware of. It's going to be a background effect. And, you know, one of the people who, who uh, stumbled into a similar idea uh, Roland Barthes, uh, Camera Lucida, his famous book on photography, which I first read in graduate school. And Barthes makes the distinction between what he calls the studium in a photograph and the punctum. The studium is the general atmosphere of a photograph, and the punctum is usually something that sticks out, that catches his attention in the photograph. And at the time I first read that book, I thought, wow, this is really insightful, but how did he come up with that? Because there's no real systematic reason to say that. It sounds like something he just came up with phenomenologically by observing himself, observing photographs. And uh, he translated that faithfully into prose, but how would you connect that idea with anything else? It seems to come from nowhere. And then I realized it's, it didn't come from nowhere at all. It's actually the distinction between the medium and the mediator. And what I mean by that is, just as McLuhan says, you've got something like a background medium of television, uh, which, which we are supposedly consciously unaware of, according to McLuhan. Um, and for Heidegger, it's a tool that we're unaware of until it breaks. For McLuhan, we're unaware of it until it becomes an old medium, until it's replaced by a new one, turns into a cliche, or until it's reversed by overheating and filling up with too much detail. But that's that's for another time. Um, whereas the mediator is a privileged piece of content that somehow allows the medium, allows us access to the medium or allows the medium to change. And uh, for McLuhan, there are two ways this can happen. And actually I said I was gonna talk about it later, but I'm actually gonna talk about it now because I, I, I just stumbled into it again. Uh, one of them is what he calls reversal, the reversal of the overheated medium. So let's take something like cars. Cars begin as a medium for speed and efficiency and over time, they reverse into a lack of freedom, into the slowness of traffic jams, into the inefficiency of having to have insurance, having to find parking places in a place like Los Angeles. 
uh, in busy neighborhoods at busy times. And so at some point, one would imagine, they're also reversing into pollution. They're making the environment worse. Uh, at some point, they're going to reverse into something else. And there's there's always several different paths of reversal available. So it could reverse into publicly owned cars, like, you know, Zipcar, where you just rent a car on the spot instead of having to own them and pay for your insurance. Could and will probably reverse into electric cars. Could, under a different scenario, reverse into mass transits, which I don't think will happen in the United States for political reasons, social reasons. It might someday, but it doesn't look promising. Um, so there are different paths for reversal possible, which is why McLuhan is not a technological determinist, the way some people like leftist critic Raymond Williams call him, because the different possible paths remain indeterminate. And they might not always be under direct human control, right? There might be sociological factors or technological factors that tend to press in one direction rather than the other. But the one that's more under human control is, is the method that... Uh, McLuhan calls retrieval. Retrieval, as he said, is what he says artists do. And he means artists in the widest possible sense. That includes computer programmers, the creative class, more generally, we'll say, even though that term didn't exist during his lifetime. The creative person is someone who, uh, in McLuhan's understanding, revives a, a dead cliche and turns it into a new medium. And this is obviously under human selection because the artist has to decide how this is done, and you can't, it's not automatically successful. So here's an example. Um, epic poems. No one really writes epic poems anymore, except for maybe lonely eccentrics in their basements. Uh, and I've seen one parody of an epic poem uh, within the last 20 years, but it's it's not a genre. People are going to write novels, or they're going to write chapbooks of lyric poetry about breakups. Uh, as Harold Bloom said, only certain genres are available at, at any given moment. The epic poem is not really an available genre at this time. Could it be revived? It certainly could. Um, now doesn't seem like the time, but if someone revives it, it's going to have to be someone who somehow makes the epic poem plausible for a new world and a new audience. They're not just going to be able to cut, you know, write um, typical epic poem about Greek or Roman history. That would seem very antiquarian and boring to people today. It's going to have to be something that emerges naturally out of its surroundings today. Or um, um, there's probably things that have actually happened. You know, uh, uh, swing dancing became fashionable again for a while, and maybe it still is. Uh, poetry slams brought back the old tradition of oral bards in, in some way that was relevant to 1990s culture. The list goes on. And in a sense, any important artist or other such creative figure is going to be drawing on the tradition in some way. T.S. Eliot wrote about this. Uh, it takes creativity to imitate the tradition. You can't just copy it. And I agree with that idea. Um, and so I think McLuhan is right about this. This retrieval is always needed, but that is going to require even more imagination than reversal because reversal probably only has a few possible paths at any given moment, technologically and otherwise. Whereas with uh, retrieval, anything can happen. So when I think about the future of philosophy, when people talk about the future of philosophy, usually what they're doing is they're just projecting the present of philosophy and finding some far out version of it. And, you know, I don't like offending people, but I've, I've named names. I've said, I think Schelling and Merleau-Ponty both fall into that category because Schelling and Merleau-Ponty both do not really overcome the thought world ontotaxonomy that everything in the world is either human thought or belongs in the other basket with everything else. 
And Shelley and Merleau-Ponty just give us a kind of bizarre science fiction version of that same modern dualism. And so I, I regard them as not really philosophers of the future, but as far out philosophers of the present. I've said the same about Blanchot, just a more far out version of, of Derrida. And back in the early 90s, people were saying Blanchot is the future of philosophy. It never happens, right? It's a respectable, just another respectable continental philosophy author. But no, it would be hard now to say that Blanchot is the future of philosophy. Um, that, that ship has sailed. La Ruelle is another one, Francois La Ruelle, where he was kind of the nihilistic, or maybe not nihilistic, but the the way far out version of Derrida in a different way from Blanchot. And I don't think he's the future of philosophy either. It's going to take some real invention. It's going to take reviving something that present day philosophy thinks is dead wrongly. I've placed my bets on the theory of substance in the Aristotelian tradition that I think is really the future, near future of philosophy, because the, the future is usually something people wrongly think is dead. It doesn't come from extrapolating the present. It comes from reversing the present in some way or retrieving it, retrieving the past. Sorry. So that's that's my little lesson on futurism for the day. It cannot be an extrapolation. Yeah, I heard you mention in another interview that uh, if if you're looking for substance and scale, triple O is the only game in town. That's right. That's right. That, that's I don't remember where I said that, but I agree with that. <laughs> you could have just made that up now, and I agree with it. You, you did say it. I can't remember the name of the the podcast, but you definitely said it. And maybe I'll explain that phrase. I've just explained why we're the only game in town for substance, unless you go back to the Aristotelian tradition. And if you go back to the Aristotelian tradition, including Leibniz, Thomas Aquinas, Aristotle, that's maybe the backbone of the tradition, uh, they don't really offer objects of different scales because they tend to be very hung up on the difference between natural and artificial. Explicitly so in Leibniz's case, where there's this difference between substance and aggregates. So Leibniz says the Dutch East India Company cannot be an object, whereas I wrote a whole book supposing that it is, and I think demonstrating that it is. And so if you want to be able to talk about artificial stuff and substance at the same time, we are the only game in town because you can go to Latour and get lots of interesting discussions of, of the late great Bernard Latour, lots of interesting discussions of, of different sized of, of natural and artificial objects, but you're not going to be able to get substance because for him, everything is reducible to its actions. Whereas for triple O, a thing is what's capable of many different actions other than the ones it's having now. And is also capable of no actions at all. And philosophy needs to account for that. So in the prequel to this book, art and objects, uh, which was published with Polity, right? In 2019, 2020? 2020. You come up with this idea of weird formalism. And now we've talked about all sorts of different types of form and formalisms. Maybe could you talk about weird formalism? And you mentioned the cell. Maybe you could also talk about the cell here. Right. The cell is the term I use for this new hybrid entity in the arts that's made of the beholder and the work. So for me, the artwork is not the work in isolation from the human. The artwork is the physical work plus the human, or it need not be physical. Sometimes it's a performance piece or what have you. Uh, And that is the proper unit of aesthetics. And this has several consequences. One of them is that uh, we each have individual vocations to appreciate certain artworks. Now, you can still make the case that uh, people of taste tend to like these kinds of artworks better than these kinds of artworks. It's not a total subjectivism. Just because I like an artwork doesn't mean my taste is very developed yet. Uh, When I first got into architecture, my taste was not good at all. Um, It it took some learning in the field to be able to distinguish what I think are good from bad buildings or less successful buildings. 
but it does in, bring a personal element into play. And you find examples of this. You find the example that um, every great poet usually has one poet they really like who we wouldn't consider a great, a great poet. And the example I always think of is um, T.S. Eliot and Jules Laforgue. And Laforgue is an okay poet, but you wouldn't call him one of the great French poets of the late 19th century. There's just something in him that Eliot responded to that helped Eliot find his voice. And with philosophers, you find this too. Um, I asked Mayasu, Quentin Mayasu, in my interview with him in 2010, who are those philosophers for you? Uh, and who are maybe not the most famous, but the ones who really shaped you. And for him, it was the, the thinkers between Kant and Hegel, such as the more obscure ones, like Jacobi and Reinhold and, and Maimon. Uh, these are the ones for him that really helped him find his vision in philosophy. And for me, I suppose it's um, Ortega Gasset, to some extent, Brentano and Meinong, um, who were people who helped me find my, my way as an object-oriented philosopher. And what that means is that uh, we need to account for that personal element. And interestingly, this is exactly what Max Scheler does with Kant's ethics for the same reason. Scheler really admires Kant's ethics, but he says that um, formalism in ethics is right in the sense that you don't want ethics reduced to a series of consequences, that um, I'm being nice because I don't want to go to hell when I die. You don't want ethics to be that because Shaler sees the point of a self-contained autonomous ethics. However, Shaler also sees what Kant didn't see, which is that there are personal and even national ethical vocations. Um, I remember uh, after the death of Pope John Paul II, one of the uh, Italian cardinals in the church anonymously said, it's time to go back to an Italian pope because the Italians have a vocation to be pope. There's a certain Italian charisma that fits with pope. And whether you agree with that or not, it's at least possibly true. You can imagine a world in which it's true that, yeah, actually, maybe the Italians are best suited for it anyway. Um, My Polish relatives would never accept that. Right, right, right. <laughs> and you could, say, you could also say the opposite, right? You could say that the Poles have a vocation and, and that... Uh, John Paul II was just the first of many more to come. We're going to, because the Poles are very committed to their church and they rallied around their church under communism and it kept them together as a culture. You can make the same case for the Poles. Whatever you want to say, I'm not committed to making any particular statements about the Poles, but you could easily see making a true statement about national vocations, the Russians and chess, the Russians and male ballerinas. You know, good luck being a a young boy interested in ballet in any other country but Russia, right? Uh, you're probably going to be viewed as a sissy or something, right? Whereas in Russia, you, you'll be cultivated. There's world-class instructors. So, um, and then in, the, in personal cases, like I've mentioned the example, I'll go back to the uh, Bernal Latour, whose tragic loss affects all of us. He died 16 days ago, I'm afraid. Um, I felt an ethical imperative to write my two books on Latour, and I, I still am due a third that I haven't just haven't finished yet. Um, and I would have felt guilty if I hadn't written those books. Why? Well, because I think Bruno Latour was the most important living philosopher prior to his death. And n almost no one else in philosophy thought that, either on the analytic or the continental side. I, I often had to spell Latour's name to philosophy professors. Because in my view, Latour's assumptions are so basically different from both the analytic and continental world, just as Whitehead's philosophical assumptions are. And Whitehead's not appreciated fully by either of those traditions. That um, who else was going to stand up for Latour as a philosopher? It had to be me. 
unless we want to wait to the next generation, somebody might have done it. But this was my ethical imperative. And so I put a lot of work into into writing those. Um, I've kind of dropped the ball on the third one just because so many other things have come up and also because I've wanted to make sure I understand his modes of existence, which I think is very hard for everyone to process. And so I've been taking my time letting that soak in, like letting letting a wine breathe. Latour himself coming from a wine family, it's an apt analogy. Um, but uh, um, so there are personal ethical imperatives and there are obvious ones like um, when my grandfather seemed to be dying in the hospital in Kansas City, the day before my dissertation defense, I nonetheless flew to Kansas City the day before my dissertation defense to spend time with him. He ended up living another five years, but I didn't think he was going to. And so it was, I saw it as an ethical imperative, especially since my father was unable to go due to problems at work. Um, I said, look, I'm going to go and hope that I get back in time for my defense. Turns out I got home at around 2 a.m. and my defense was at nine. So I didn't get much sleep. Turned out I nailed the defense to my surprise. I, I tended to become tongue-tied in those situations in the past, but I, I nailed that one and I've gotten better ever since at oral presentation. But uh, that's a case where personal ethical imperatives come into play. And y- there isn't really room for that in Kant's. At least he doesn't spell it out enough. There are a couple of examples where he sort of flirts with it, but he never really develops it. So anyway, that's that's how Shaler did it with the ethics. I'm trying to do it with the aesthetics. Latour did it with the metaphysics. Right, because Latour really ended the idea that there are two kinds of things, humans and everything else. There are all these hybrids in the world that Kant doesn't really account for, like the ozone hole. You can't really call it nature. You can't really call it culture. You can't really call it human or non-human. You can't really call it phenomenal or noumenal. So it kind of cuts across all of all of Kant's distinctions. And this is something Latour does very well. So I think this is why overcoming formalism without being an anti-formalist is the way to go in philosophy, art, and ethics, uh, because the usual anti-formalist move is to just say, oh, everything's interconnected. And then that just means that you end up invoking whatever connections you feel like. So for example, if you're a Marxist, you just say, oh, it's all about capitalism. This artwork is an expression of the class relations in Victorian England. That's that's what Dickens is really about. Okay, fine, but that's not all that Dickens is about. Dickens can be read by people not living in Victorian England, not living under capitalism, and still get something out of it. And so people who who take the anti-formalist step, and I include someone as important as Hegel, who just treats art as another shape of spirit, like religion or, or politics or anything else, do not allow for even a minimal self-containment of autonomous parts of reality, which you have to do because that happens. You know, a, a, a new materialist, um, um, new historicist, sorry, a new historicist would probably tell you that... Um, uh, Shakespeare expresses the social energies of the Elizabethan era or something like that. Well, there are a couple of problems with that. One of them is why didn't all the playwrights express the energies of the Elizabethan era as well as Shakespeare? And also, why are there Shakespeare festivals in 21st century Indonesia? Uh, he seems to work in that context, which has nothing to do with Elizabethan England. It's an Islamic contemporary society. So formalism has a certain element of truth in it that the anti-formalist theories don't uh, account for. Whereas my kind of formalism can account for things like political effects on artworks. I can account for the protest element of Picasso's Guernica, right? Guernica integrates a couple of aspects of its time while aestheticizing them. So I can account for that. Anti-formalists cannot account for that. And formalists cannot account for the political part. So I think I've come up with a better model here for art and architecture. 
Well, we've reached uh, the end of our interview. It is midnight now in California, and so I want to let you go. Um, But before I let you go, there is a ritual, perhaps you remember from our last interview on the New Books Network, and that is, I need to ask what you're working on now. You'll probably laugh. I am working on a book on the NBA Basketball League. And uh, I also, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that uh, one of my editors of Polity has been getting on me to write about sports. I have a brief sports writing career in my background during my graduate school days. In Chicago. In Chicago, indeed. I met Sammy Sosa. I also provoked a legendary tirade from Indiana basketball coach Bobby Knight that made the national news. That was my high point as a sports writer, probably. Um, So that's part of it. And I've been thinking, what would I want to write about when I write about sports? And the answer was provided by my book, Immaterialism, because I tried to develop an alternative social theory in that book based on Lim Margulis's evolutionary theory of symbiosis. And then I explored it. A li- that was with the Dutch East India Company. And then I did it a little bit with the American Civil War in my object-oriented ontology book. And then I realized, wow, people are going to think I can only write about war and violence. And I don't want people to think it's only applicable to that. So let me... Um, Maybe the NBA is the right thing to do. And I want to write theoretically about the NBA, and I spend a lot of time listening to NBA podcasts and so forth. Now, the final piece of the puzzle is this. Um, I've never been able to justify, ever since graduate school, never been able to justify watching a lot of basketball on TV, even though I would love to. In Cairo, I really couldn't because it was all on in the middle of the night. The time zone was so weird. Um since I moved back to the U.S. in 2015, I just haven't been able to justify the time because I have an active writing program. And I realized, hey, if I want to watch a whole bunch of basketball games, the only way I can justify it is this. And, and so I have subscribed to NBA League Pass for the first time, which allows you to watch any game. The Los Angeles games, Lakers and Clippers, I have to watch on, I think, a 72-hour delay. It's a blackout, so that doesn't hurt ticket sales. Uh, but I am trying to watch at least one quarter of every NBA game this year, which is a lot. You know, it's it's like watching three full games on some days. Oh, my God. The, the advantage is I am watching them mostly on tape delay so that I can skip timeouts and save time that way and skip the fluffy parts like cheerleaders dancing and things and just uh, run through the, the parts where there's live action. And I can also see if a game is close, I'll watch the fourth quarter. If the game was not close, I'll watch the first quarter to see how they substitute. And so there's a lot of advantages to watching it on delay. But those fluffy parts might give you something too, right? Once in a while, I'll watch them. Like they'll show a highlight or they'll they'll, uh, start joking around, but I just don't have the time to watch all that stuff. Right, 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 right. But hopefully in a couple of years, people can buy a book from me about the National Basketball Association, which also has the advantage over American baseball and American football of having a potential international audience because everyone knows basketball around the world and most people know the NBA. Whereas if I write about baseball or American football, I'm cutting my audience down to U.S. readers pretty much, maybe a few other countries. So the NBA was the one to do. Baseball, you got Cuba? Yeah, I don't think there's going to be much readership in Cuba. I do have some readers there. I have a correspondence with a Cuban reader about philosophical ideas, and there might be other readers. So you, you never really know. Uh, readers pop up in strange places. You also have a book coming out in February, right? I have two books coming out, one in February, one in March. Mm-hmm. Uh, February is the Graham Harmon Reader, put out by Zero, which includes excerpts from each of my six Zero books, plus uh, probably my most important articles, as determined by my editors, John Cogburn and Nikki Young, who know my work as well as I do. 
both of them. And um, the other book coming out in March is a co-authored book on archaeology with Professor Chris Whitmore of Texas Tech University, and it's called Objects Untimely, where we're trying. Uh, 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 has had some influence on archaeology and had some opponents in other quarters of, of archaeology, but uh, we're going to try to get the debate rolling a bit more with that book coming from Polity also in March. Wonderful. And I would love to have you back on for all of these. Anytime, anytime at all. I love this show. The book is Architecture and Objects, published in 2022 with University of Minnesota Press. Professor Graham Harmon, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Adam.